edition of the Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And we've got another great episode for you guys today. We're starting off with a little bit of news from around the sports world. Of course, bringing you up to date on the latest in MLB negotiations since we spoke last. We're going to do something a little different in the stack corner today and discuss traditional stats like batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, um, and really talk to you about what they're valuable for and what they may miss uh, that some more advanced statistics get. Yeah, because I know these are still the stats that the large percentage of baseball fans interact with on a day-to-day basis. These are the stats you see on someone's bottom line when they come up to bet, and I think it's it's valuable to understand what their shortcomings are, but also sort of how much faith you should see in seeing this single stat. What can you infer from a hitter from knowing this stat? And I think part of our motivation for wanting to talk about these more traditional stats is that we're recording this uh, on Saturday. Tomorrow is Father's Day, and we wanted to do a Father's Day special episode for you guys. So... These are the stats our fathers uh, grew to know and love when they when they grew up becoming baseball fans. And we are actually going to have a segment where we both talk to our fathers about sort of what they see as the current state of baseball and things like that. So I think that should be a fun segment for you guys. Just a caveat, I know we, we didn't have a Mother's Day episode and we're not trying to give in to the gender norms of, <laughs> of who's allowed to be a baseball fan and, and stuff like that just in our personal cases we sort of got our baseball fandom from our fathers, but not begrudging you if you have an avid uh, baseball fan mother and that's who got you into the game. Actually, a little jelly if you have a huge yeah. baseball fan mother, because I can tell you she did not like me watching games at the table when I was a kid. So um, that's what we have on tap. Sam, why don't you start us off with the news? Because I know there's one piece of news that's really burning you in the side right yeah, now. Yeah, so I think I've brought it up on the podcast before, but I'm I'm a Jets fan when it comes to the NFL. So if you ever get confused about which New York teams I like, it is always the worst one. So it's the Mets, the Jets, and the Knicks. Uh, and one of the stars of the Jets, perhaps arguably their best player, Jamal Adams, he is a uh, going into his fourth year as a safety for the Jets, and he has demanded a trade from the New York Jets. So there's a history of sort of some problems between Jamal Adams and the Jets' front office. In the most recent season, there were rumors that the Jets were accepting trade offers for Jamal Adams at the trade deadline. Jamal took great offense to this because he views himself as a franchise player that shouldn't even be on the table Him and Joe Douglas, the Jets GM, seemed to work this out during the season. Joe Douglas basically saying, I'm going to take a trade offer from anyone, but I set the price so high that practically I didn't want to trade you. Uh, But now Jamal Adams is demanding a trade mainly because he wants a contract extension from the Jets. And the Jets have basically said, hey, we want to make you a Jet for life, but we have two more years of team control on you possibly a third if we franchise tag you. And it's just too early to talk extension because of that. And as an added reason why they don't really want to talk extension now is because of the coronavirus, there's a lot of uncertainty in what the cap is going to be for upcoming seasons because the NFL is a revenue-sharing league. And since the salary cap is set based on the league's revenue, if the league takes a big hit to revenue this year because of the coronavirus, that's necessarily going to decrease the salary cap for upcoming seasons. And it basically doesn't make sense for teams to make like very big decisions on where they're going to allocate money without knowing what the cap's going to be in the future. So 
this is the Jets' position. Jamal Adams has said, I don't care. If you want me to be a Jet for life, engage me in salary talks now. And since you're not, I'm demanding a trade. Um, the teams, and Adam Schefter has reported that the teams he's demanding a trade to are the Ravens, Cowboys, Texans, Chiefs, Eagles, 49ers, Seahawks, and Bucks. So basically, basically anyone who's yeah, good. Basically, I think he looked up the teams that had the highest World Series <laughs> odds on, on DraftKings and said, trade me to one of these teams. Super Bowl odds. Yeah, sorry, Super Bowl but odds. But you can see where our heads are at. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so as a Jets fan, Jamal Adams is an absolutely fantastic player, a really versatile safety. He wants to be the highest paid safety in the league. I forgot to say that. And, and there have been reports that he wants a contract in the in the vicinity of $20 million a year. When I think the previous highest paid safety is Eddie Jackson making around like $14.5 million a year. So he doesn't just want to be the highest paid. He wants to be like way highest paid. Um, I, I would be very sad to see the Jets trade Jamal Adams. You know, he's, he's a big part of their defense. He's an incredible player. But on the other hand, you know, Joe Douglas is – is building a team where he understands it's a salary cap league. You need to place a certain value on positions, on players, and not overpay. And you saw him do this again and again in free agency this year, which is I put a value on a player, and I'm not going to go a dollar over that. And that might seem like you know rough decision-making, but that's the type of brutal decision-making you need to use to build a football team because there are so many pieces that you can't be giving – all of your salary to, to, to certain players. And this is sort of the team building model that the Patriots have used for years, that the Ravens have used for years. Really good franchises use this team building model because they understand it's about the culture of the team. So, you know, if Jamal Adams isn't willing to, to be a part of this winning culture, then hopefully they can get, uh, you know, two first round picks, a really good deal back for him. But I would like to see them work this out because Jamal Adams is a great player and I'd love to see him in Jeff. Yeah, and they have all the leverage here, so I think they will. Yeah. Um, another piece of player news we have is that Addison Russell, ex-Cub shortstop, big prospect, part of the Jason Hamill, Jeff Samarja trade with Oakland um, a number of years back now. He was released by the Cubs in December. No team picked him up, and he is actually finalizing a KBO contract. And you know, Sam, I'm excited about this because he's about to go to the Kai Boom Heroes, who are my boys over there in the KBO. And Addison Russell's just the type of Vladimir Ballantine type player who could go over there and absolutely rake. Yeah, and, and Russell is a guy who was a highly touted prospect for many years and just was never able to put it together with the bat in the major leagues. Never had an 100 WRC+, plus, so was never an average hitter in this league. The last couple of years, it's been more like an 80 WRC+. Plus. And of course, there is the added sort of controversy with Addison Russell that he has had a domestic violence yep. uh, case with him. So, you know, there is some question in in, in how much teams want to want to go near that. And I actually, yeah. you know, I appreciate teams taking a stand against that if that's what they're doing. I just think from all the things we've seen with owners and the whole Osuna situation, it was less taking a stand against domestic violence, which the MLB should do, and more he's not worth the negative PR as opposed to someone like Osuna, who at the time yeah. was worth I mean, I, I do have a, as, as you guys have sort of seen over the last few episodes, I do have a pessimistic enough view of, of MLB, MLB organizations owners, so. that they're, that if, 
if Addison Russell was a better player, they wouldn't be taking this stand against him. Definitely. And that actually brings us into our ongoing and seemingly never-ending owner-versus-player saga to get the MLB season resumed, or started, I suppose, um, because spring training never even got off the ground. So um, there was a meeting this week, face or face mask to face mask, I saw someone (laughs) tweet. That's good. Yeah, um, it's not me, unfortunately, but... Between Rob Manfred and Tony Clark, uh, Rob Manfred, obviously the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Tony Clark, the head of the Major League Baseball Players Association. And in this meeting, Rob Manfred and Tony Clark reportedly talked about a number of immovable objects, um, like prorated salary. The Players Union is not moving off of prorated salary. Um, the owners seem to be unwilling to move off of expanded playoffs. Um, but they also talked about what is movable. So the universal DH is something that people could seat on. Hopefully the players are hoping that the owners can seat on the number of games a little bit, but that doesn't look good. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but out of this face-to-face meeting, um, there were so many mixed reports. It was so hard to tell what had actually happened. And we'll go into some of that as well, but I just want to say before we do, the bottom line of the meeting was that there was this very vague framework put together with something like 60 games with full prorated salaries and in return two years not just 2020 but also 2021 would have expanded playoffs um, to 16 teams and uh, two years of universal DH um, as well as the players giving up their right to file grievance under the March agreement they made. Yeah and, and that's a crucial point which is basically once the MLB said you know, they offer another contract, another proposal that the players just weren't okay with. They, the players basically had this Twitter campaign where they just said, tell us when and where, we'll go play. And now the owners have wanted to implement this short 50-game season for a long time under the March agreement because, of, as we've said many times, all they care about is getting the playoff games played. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that the March agreement sort of said the commissioner can uh, – sort of put into effect a season, but they have to do sort of under the guise of like as many games as possible. And implementing a 50-game season now would clearly not be as many games as they could do sort of before the end of October, uh, before the end of September. So the owners were very scared that if they just implemented this 50-game season, the players could file a labor grievance under this March agreement, and it could potentially be like a multi-billion dollar suit against against the owners. So they're very scared of this happening and are insistent that any deal means that the players give up this right to file a grievance. And now after this meeting, there was a lot of optimism, you know, on baseball Twitter, in the baseball Mm -hmm. world. In fact, John Heyman, a a baseball reporter, even reported that a deal was done basically in the meeting, that they had basically come to an agreement on a deal. But in the aftermath of John Heyman reporting this, a lot of other people came out and said, this report is wrong, there is no deal, this was just a proposal by the league for 60 games. And the MLB Players Association said, this was not a deal. Uh, This was just a framework that could move us towards an agreement. And they basically countered with 70 games. They said, you know, keep the expanded playoffs, keep the universal DH, we'll give up the grievance. But let's do 70 games. 10 more games. Yeah, let's do 70 games instead of 60 games. Seems like a, a meaning, you know, a meaningful ability. Maybe they compromise at 65. Right. Looks like we're moving towards the season, right? 
Of course not. <laughs> of course that's not right. Because what happens is the players give that 70-game proposal. And my feeling, like Sam just said, is that if the owners came back and said, fine, 66 games, it, it would be over. Yeah. This would be done and we'd have a baseball season. Instead, the owners say, nope, 60 games or nothing. And they're just going to sit on their hands and wait till it's appropriate for Rob Manfred to implement a 48-game season. And it's unbelievable. All they needed to do was say, fine, we'll give you six more games. Six extra days on the calendar. And they could not do it. It makes me absolutely livid. Yeah, it's, it's insane. And basically what you see is after this meeting, Rob Manfred let out a statement which basically says, I believe in this meeting we've developed a framework that allows us to move towards an agreement. Very clear language that there was no agreement, right? Mm -hmm. But then the next day, after the, the, the Players Association counters, Rob Manfred is saying things like, I don't know what Tony and I were doing there for several hours going back and forth and making trades if we weren't reaching an agreement. So we clearly have a dynamic here where Manfred is negotiating with Tony Clark and then he's taking these negotiations back to a group of hardline owners who don't want to make any concessions and Manfred being the spineless, terrible commissioner that he is, is just saying things to appease these owners, not in the interest of baseball, but in the interest of keeping his job. Keeping his job and satisfying his buddies because he's friends yeah. with all of them. And forgetting that as the commissioner of baseball, yes, he has, like a, a, I think, a legal fiduciary responsibility to the owners. But he also has a responsibility to the game of baseball and to the league. And a strong commissioner would have been able to say, look, guys, I don't care that you're hardliners. We need to play baseball. This is in all of our best interest. Because it's not a hard sell to explain to the owners how playing baseball this year is in their best interest and doing so as quickly as possible is in their and, best interest. And there's an argument that in his fiduciary commitment to the owners, he should actually be telling them, hey, you're wrong. Yeah. You are hurting the long-term future of baseball. Yeah. You are hurting your long-term yeah. bottom lines by being so obstinate right now. And so he's really just dropping the ball here again and again. He's allowing the owners to just absolutely railroad these negotiations in a way that is either going to make us have a 48-game season that everybody's unhappy about, the owners won't be happy, and the players won't be happy, or we just don't have baseball. And that would be obviously the worst possible outcome. Yeah, so in, in all the, the kumbaya of the aftermath of the meeting between Rob Manfred and Tony Clark, where we thought maybe these two sides are finally getting together, Rob Manfred releases this very incendiary statement and it appeal, appears the bad blood is back. Tony Clark responded, in my discussions with Rob in Arizona, we explored a potential pro-rega framework, but I made clear repeatedly in that meeting and after it that there were a number of significant issues with what he proposed, in particular the number of games. It is unequivocally false to suggest that any tentative agreement or other agreement was reached in that meeting. In fact, in conversation within the last 24 hours, Rob invited a counter-proposal for more games and he would take back to the owners. We submitted that counter-proposal today. So Tony Clark is basically coming out and saying Rob Manfred is just straight up lying right. about the meeting. And really anyone that's ever participated in these sorts of labor negotiations know when, a, when an agreement is reached. So it seems very clear that Rob Manfred is acting in bad faith here and lying about his understanding of the meeting to satisfy his bosses. Uh, and, and I mean, this just goes along with everything else he said. We told you on the last episode that he came out and said he's 100% certain that 
the season will be played. He has a statement from yesterday where he tells someone, well, I can't say I'm 100% certain that we'll play baseball this year because what he's doing is he's just basically doing whatever he wants to try and get the owner's way. I'm not even sure it's his way because he may be a robot. I, I'm not sure he's a human. He may be a robot. He's like uh, the, the Goodell bot in South Park. He's like the Goodell bot in South Park, except yeah. he's sent by the NFL to destroy baseball so that they can be the one true yeah. league in, in uh, the United States. Oh, so the so. NFL owners actually control the Goodell bot and the Manfred bot. They do. They're a highly, group of gods. highly yeah. sophisticated AI engineers. Um, so, again, we'll keep you updated on what's going on with that, but they hope to start the season by July 19th, so I know we said this like two weeks ago now, but if they don't reach an agreement soon, it's not going to happen. And I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing a 50-game season and the owners are just doing everything they can to stall before yep. they can implement that season without getting an obviously losing grievance yep. filed against them. And they probably would, they might still lose the grievance if they do yeah. it. But, but And for that reason, they could not implement a season at all because they're so scared of losing a grievance later. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a poisonous situation. And I, I mean, at this point, I feel like we're moving towards like a no doubt strike in the in the next CBA yeah. at the end of 2021 because like this is just the situation's become so poisonous that I just yep. don't see how the next CBA gets gets signed before the 2022 season. I agree with you. And if you need more Manfred slander in your life, stay tuned because although we haven't recorded it yet, I'm certain that my father will come with plenty <laughs> of Rob Manfred slander. Um, but with that, we're going to round out the news with a little bit of interesting news going on in all corners of sports. There seems to be corona cases bubbling up across the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB. Um, so they're seeing cases going way up in Florida and Arizona, um, just general cases in all of yeah. uh, the states. Arizona especially is very, very bad right now, and of course... I just want to take a second to remind everybody that that's because Doug Ducey is a moron. He's the governor of Arizona, and he knows uh, absolutely nothing. Um, so he has been downplaying the significance of coronavirus um, since everything came out. Um, he just issued a mask order two days ago, which is roughly four weeks too late at least. Yeah, and I, I think I saw something that Arizona is now having about 20% of COVID tests come back positive, which is... About the equivalent of where New York was at, at, at the max. At the peak. At the peak. Yeah. So, so they're in really bad water. They're in really bad hot water. Florida's the same way. Um, and so this is like raising the question, what's going to happen um, with sports that are planning to return? And I think an obvious um, example of this is that the Clemson college football team has come back and started practicing. A couple days ago, two guys tested positive. Yesterday, 21 more guys tested positive. So now the Clemson football team has 23 positive cases of COVID-19, which is kind of just an illustration of the risk that is being run by returning to play. Um, I think college is a much harder place to control things since college athletes, you know, aren't living in isolated locations yeah. and they're not being paid. And um, there's a lot of complications there, but I think that if other leagues are smart, so maybe just the NBA will do this, they should be looking at what's happening right now with Clemson and um, with some of the European soccer teams 
and tr trying to learn from it and say, what can we do to bring our league back safely and slowly and in a way that is good for everybody? Yeah, and well, the, the NBA is, is an interesting discussion because as we've, as we've mentioned in the past, their return plan is to basically have this bubble in Orlando, Florida. But given that the cases are spiking in Florida so much, there's a question of... Does that make sense? Yeah, does that still make sense to have this bubble in Florida? Now, I don't know how you know, how much of a contingency plan they have to have this bubble elsewhere uh, where maybe the cases aren't spiking as bad. But, you know, th this is COVID. I think COVID has sort of fallen out of the news a bit, but we need to remind ourselves that it's not over and that mm -hmm. all of these discussions about, you know, whether or not, you know, the MLB can come to a financial agreement, whether or not the NFL is going to be able to play, whether or not the NBA will be able to come back under these plans – there's still a lot of unknowns. We're acting like, you know, we have COVID figured out when we don't. And there's just a lot of uncertainty going on for the return of sports. Uh, and hopefully things work out, but it's really hard to say where we're headed. At this yeah, point. agreed. Um, so with that, uh, we're going to go into what is colloquially known as everybody's favorite segment, Stack Corner. And as we mentioned at the top of the episode, in honor of Father's Day, we are reviewing some of your father's statistics. Things like batting average and OBP, um, slugging percentage, OPS, home runs, runs, and RBIs. So let's just go through each one of them very quickly um, and kind of explain what they mean if you are a total novice to this. Um, or And then we'll go through and talk about like each one's value, etc. So... Um, starting with average, average is uh, just a calculation of how many hits a player is getting per at-bat. So every time they come to the plate, minus all the times um, they're hit by a pitch or walked or reach on it. Or, or, or hit a sacrifice. Or hit a sacrifice. Yeah. That's what I meant. Um, then on-base percentage is like average, but it includes walks and hit by pitch. So that's basically how much you're getting on-base over your play appearances. Right. Uh, and so play that's play appearances yeah. is just literally every time you come to the play. Exactly. Uh, slugging percentage is looking at the number of bases you get per at bat. So instead of just getting, you know, instead of just doing your number of hits over your at bats, it's your number of total bases over at bats. So a double is worth twice a single, a home run's worth four times a single, mm -hmm. things like that. OPS is just adding your on base percentage plus your slugging percentage, on base plus slugging. And then, of course, there's home runs, runs, and RBIs, which are somewhat self-explanatory. Uh, RBIs being if your hit results in someone scoring, obviously. Um, but, yeah, those are the stats that we've sort of, and really even on base and slugging, I'd say, are things that have been talked about within the past 20 or 30 years. Yeah. But, but for many years, it's just, you know, your average, your home runs, and your RBIs. These were the triple crown stats. These were the stats that you looked at when you were discussing the offensive performance of a player. And the question is... They also make up the traditional slash line. Exactly. They make up the traditional slash line as well. And the question is, is well, why do we need stats like WOBA and WRC+. What are they measuring that these other stats can't? Um, and one useful way to look at that and we've talked about how sort of WOBA is the precise way to measure the value of every play appearance someone has. Mm -hmm. and, if you, and if you don't remember that, go back to, I think it's our third episode where we talk about that. And we really do a, an in-depth look at WOBA and then WRC+. 
And something that we thought would be interesting is look at the correlation between all these traditional stats and WOBA in the 2019 season. So I'm sure someone else has looked at this before, but Mm -hmm. just for the purpose of this discussion, I looked at all the people with 300-plus play appearances in the 2019 season, and we looked at a statistic called the R-squared between WOBA and and all of these stats. And and for for all our statistically statistic novice, statistical novices on the podcast, can you explain sort of what people should view when they see R squared? Yeah, so R squared in the most simple terms, and for those of you who have a slightly more nuanced understanding of statistics, please don't hate me for this oversimplification, but R squared in the simplest terms is how closely do these two stats align? So um, if you have an R squared of 50, there's about a 50% correlation between the two yeah, things. Or, or 0.5. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. or 0.5. Yeah. Um, you have about a 50% correlation between the two things you're looking at. That's just very simple terms. Maybe you could break it down a little bit more in depth. Yeah, so, so the more precise statistical way to say this is that if the R squared between, let's say, your average and your WOBA is 0.5, that would mean that 50% of the variance in WOBA can be explained by variance in average. So basically that average is explaining about 50% of offensive performance would right. be would be our way of putting it. If you believe that WOBA is a complete encapsulation yeah. of offensive performance. Which I think, you know, we've tried to give the argument in the past that it is, at least in terms of what happened. Well, Not necessarily in terms of what should have happened. It is in terms of what we have right now for yeah. what happened. I don't think it's the end-all, be-all, but for what we have right now, it's probably the best one. Yeah, so let's sort of go through these stats and explain, first of all, what their R-squareds are with WOBA, and then for the ones that have a lower R-squared, what is the information that they're missing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's. So I just said average. I used fifty percent of it as an example, but that actually is the R squared for average to WOBA. So average is is explaining something like fifty percent of offensive performance. So what is it that average is missing? Where's this other fifty percent? And I think the main things are is one average assumes that you know a hit is somehow more valuable than a walk. Mm-hmm which doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you consider a single and a walk both get a runner from home to first. Right. And maybe a single will move up more runners in the process of doing that, but they're basically the, you know, the same outcome, so there's no reason why it should be discounting the value of walks. Right. And, of course, the, the second thing it's, it's not seeing is like the power that goes into getting exactly. it. So, obviously, things like doubles, triples, and home runs – are more valuable because they bring you closer to scoring. They're more likely to drive runners in. So, you know, we've, you know, a lot of time average is actually like the number one stat people care about for hitters. And and it means pretty much the least. Yeah, it means the least. And, in, and in, at least in some case, there's, there's definitely no reason if you're sort of trying to evaluate how often someone gets on base that you should be using average instead of on base percentage. That's right. Yeah. And and as an illustration of that, on base percentage is actually explains 78% almost of, 79. Yeah, of WOBA. So as we see on base percentage correlates much more closely with uh, sort of advanced uh, metrics of offensive performance than average does. 
Um, and when you go into slugging, I mean, and OPS actually, since OPS is just a combination of OBP and slugging, yeah. um, you get closer and closer to WOBA because OPS has all of the information that OBP does, which is extremely important, but it also has slugging, which now is differentiating between hits for power and, and hits for um, single bases, and that's a big part of WOBA, and it's a big part of calculating a player's total value. So. As you get up to OPS, your correlation actually is going towards 100. You could argue that there's really, just based on the 2019 season, over everybody, there wasn't a lot more information in WOBA than there was in OPS. Yeah, so OPS had a 98.7% uh, correlation here. So you're really explaining almost all of offensive performance in OPS. So if you just didn't really care about learning the the granular details of WOBA and WRC+, mm -hmm. and you're just like, just tell me their OPS. I don't want to get more into the details than that. You're really not missing all that much. Right. Now, and if you want to stick with traditional statistics, OPS and OPS allowed for pitchers are going to be probably your two best metrics at identifying a single-year performance. Yeah, and, and, and we mentioned sort of in our WOBA uh, segment that you could sort of approximately get a WOBA from doing OPS but counting OBP times two. Yeah. And we actually looked at this for just the 2019 season. But if you wanted to maximize the correlation between some weighted OPS function, which was like you have some weight uh, times OBP plus slugging, you would maximize the correlation between that and WOBA if you multiply it on base percentage by 1.6. So that, again, pretty close to two. Yeah, and that just basically tells you what WOBA is. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that gets you up to like a 99.5% correlation. So, you know, that's that's a little better than OPS. But again, OPS is not really losing that much information in evaluating right. offensive performance. And then I just want to talk about counting stats for a second here. Because the last three on the list are home runs, runs, and RBIs. And these are things that people love to look at and, um, you know... People love to say who the home run champ of a given year was, myself included. But when we're looking at evaluating a player's offensive performance, counting stats really don't tell a complete picture. So you can take home runs, runs, and RBIs as face value. That's the number of home runs they hit. It's the number of times they crossed the plate, and it's the number of guys they batted in. But what that's worth is the difficult thing to determine. So when you're talking about overall offensive worth, you want to look at things like um, offensive runs produced, OPS, WOBA, OPS+, plus, WRC+. Plus. But if you're trying to do a look at an individual player, it then helps to say, okay, well, this guy's... Um, OPS was, oh, I don't know, like 980 um, on average for five years, but you can really see that it was broken down very differently over the years. Let's say he had 980 all five years, but one year he hit a bunch of homers but didn't, hit, didn't get on base that much, and then the next year he got on base a ton but didn't have that many homers. Now, this is a rare situation, but if you really are trying to evaluate players, all of these pieces of information tell you a little bit. 
And then it's your job as the investigator or as the viewer or the fan to go and put all the pieces together to say this is the type of player that this individual is. Yeah, and, and if for one second I could just rail against RBIs because I'll I, you I, I think RBIs are actually, to the casual fan, often c- considered the most important statistic or something because like that's, that's about creating runs for your team. You're driving in runs. But if you look at uh, RBIs per plate appearance and look at that correlation to WOBA, it's actually the lowest of any traditional stat. It's only 37%. Now, of course, better players are going to drive runners in more often because they're just going to get more hits and stuff like that. And that's basically where all the correlation is coming from because yeah. everything else is just situational. Exactly. And, and the issue with RBI is it's RBIs, it's really a stat that tells you more about your teammates than yourself. Right. Because it depends on your basically getting the opportunity to drive runners in. So, like... If you're coming up with the bases loaded every time, you're obviously going to get more RBIs right. than if you're coming up with two outs and the bases empty. So it makes sense that people care about RBIs from the perspective of like scoring runs is the name of the game. So let's, you know, if you're driving runs in, that that's important. But as a measure of individual offensive performance, it doesn't really make much sense. And actually, the counting stat that correlates the most with uh, individual offensive performance is actually scoring runs, which is interesting because, you know, runs have a 61% correlation with WOBA. And I think what that's getting at is that runs actually say more about you than your teammates because in order to score a run, you have to get on base first. So, and obviously, once you're on base, you have to rely on your teammates to drive you in. But the act of getting on base correlates more with your traditional performance than the act of having the opportunity to drive a run in. Now, Sam, I generally agree with your point about RBIs, that it's that it doesn't tell you a lot about an individual player. But the counterpoint here is that if you look at the RBI leaderboard between 2015 and 2019, Nolan Arenado is number one, a guy who didn't really play for a great team, but then you could argue, well, he always hit behind Charlie Blackman. It's also the course effect. I it's also the course effect. But then you have, um, you know, Paul Goldschmidt at six, who played for some bad Diamondbacks teams over that stretch, unfortunately, I hate to say. You have Jose Abreu at seven, who's never really played for a good team. So there is something to be said for guys who can, uh, year to year, I'm not sure it says anything. But over a large sample size, I think there is something to be said for certain guys who just get runners in. I mean, Nolan Arenado is uh, seven, is... 90 runs above the next highest guy over that stretch, um, who's Edwin Encarnacion. So there is something to be said for guys who really know how to bat players in, and Nolan Arenado is one of them. But I, I agree that you can't just look at a guy who had 120 RBIs in a season and say, wow, that's the best run producer yeah, of the year. Well, well but I, I also think there's an extent to which, yeah, good players are going to drive in a lot of runs. But, like, we shouldn't view... Like, we shouldn't view as causal the fact that they drove in a lot of runs that they were a good player that year. But, okay, Eric Hosmer is not a good hitter. His WRC Plus over 2015 to 2019 is 109. But he's a, he's 12th on this list. He's driven in 459 runs that span. What does that tell you about him? It tells me that he's been in a situation where he's been able to drive runs. Maybe he's hit a little bit better in these situations. You, you'd take a lot to convince me that that's a skill that he actually has, that he's actually just... But you've seen him hit weak dribblers through the hole against the Mets to score runs. Like, 
it's a shitty skill that he has, but he he puts the ball into play and scores around. Yeah, so, so it, it is possible that maybe you, it, when you're talking about the difference between like good individual performance versus good run driving in performance, that maybe like higher contact hitters are better mm-hmm. because making contact with runners on is going to lead to people scoring more often. Uh, even you know you, you don't want to strike out with a runner on third. And, well, but and, then uh, Chris Davis is nine. Yeah, so so there's really no rhyme or reason here, but I guess that kind of gets to your point is that RBIs is a is a poor statistic for judging a player's ability to produce runs, I think. Yeah. It does in my opinion, and I think you still disagree with this, but that's fine. In my opinion, I believe that RBIs still can tell you who is good at plating runners. That doesn't always mean run creation. Run creation occurs in a lot of ways around the field. But RBIs can tell you over a large sample size if somebody has a skill, a particular skill above the average at getting runners in. I, I guess all I'd say is that if that's a, if that's a skill that you want to measure, then I'd rather measure it in other ways. Like uh, A context-neutral RBI stat would yeah. be amazing. It well, doesn't actually, well, no, there's actually, you know, and maybe we could talk about this next week. I, I didn't think about it. There's a stat called Run expectancy 27. Oh, yeah. Which is sort of yeah. like a context-neutral RBIs, and then it measures sort of on a, every plague appearance level how much you're changing the run environment for your team. Right. Basically, so like if you get a single with no one on, how many on average runs are you are you adding to your team? Right. So that is like a bit of a context. It, it's not context-neutral, but I think like if you if you care about what RBIs are telling you, then I'd say look at RE27 over RBIs. Now, it's not a stat that's publicized really very much. Yeah, but because it's got its own problems. But yeah. That's a good idea. Maybe we should get into it next time. And guys, like I always say, if there's a stat you want to hear about um, or something you want us to cover in this segment, please reach out to us on Twitter at the Alonzo Bet. Shoot us an email at thealonzobet at gmail.com. Um, we love to hear from you, and we love to keep giving you great stats. So... With that, we're going to go into our Father's Day segment here. We have a couple very special guests joining us. Here is my dad. He's going to talk about the Mets, I'm sure. I think he might get into it with Aaron over fantasy baseball. We'll he's just a, have to he's see a big, us. big hater of fantasy sports. Okay, I'm very excited to introduce my father to the podcast, uh, Mitchell Saskin, uh, currently at his home in New York City. Uh, how are you doing, Dad? Uh, I'm doing great. I feel great being on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. This of course. Is, uh, and uh, for those who don't know, he is a big fan of the Alonzo bet. Um, so, you know, how are you, how are you sort of responding to the, the negotiations going on in, in baseball right now? Is it discouraging? Are you following it? Do you care? Uh, yeah, actually, I've been following it um, – just with disgust, but uh, I've been following it. <laughs> um, Us too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think as I've always, I'm always kind of on the side of uh, kind of labor <laughs> mm-hmm. as opposed to the owners. And I think things like this to me just kind of expose that like owners don't really care about the game. They really are just caring about their money. And I think, and it's really so blatant with this one because they'd rather play less games because they, uh, you know, maybe they'll lose some money or uh, with that, and you know, 
the idea that they have a, I, I really think, you know, listening to the back and forth with this, that if the owners could make money uh, just owning the team and not having games, they'd love to do that. They'd get rid of all the unnecessary expense. That's, That's exactly right. right. Exactly. So they could just see as an asset that they buy for, um, for less and then sell for more, mm -hmm. I think, like a house. I think that's really, they'd be happy with that. You really feel they don't really have any kind of care about the game or the meaning of the game. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that it's upsetting when things like that become just so blatant that yeah. way. But when the season comes back, you're still going to watch every Mets game, right? Of course. <laughs> well, and also, um, I don't know if you noticed, I think this was out there that – uh, Gary, uh, Keith, and Ron, uh, the the announcers for the Mets, are, won the uh, best announcers in all of Major League Baseball. Yeah, I, I tweeted about that on the Alonzo Bet Twitter account. Right. So, and Aaron, now, yeah, I just want you to know that. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I can tell you that with Sam, I've watched enough Mets games to know that they're a riot in the booth, much better than the situation we got uh, going on yeah. in the desert right now. But in honor of Father's Day, do you want to give us maybe like a favorite Mets memory you have, either in person or watching on TV, whatever it might be? Yeah, well, I think um, – well, first, let, let me just kind of share, because my legacy to, to Sam, unfortunately, <laughs> of having all the teams that he follows kind of comes from <laughs> me, so I take some responsibility for that. Yeah. But um, the uh, – I was 12 or 13 when uh, there was the, the golden age of uh, sports in New York City for all these teams. Like the Mets won the World Series in 69. The, mm -hmm. the Jets uh, won the Super Bowl in uh, 68. The Knicks. 69 Super Bowl. Yes, yeah, right, exactly, in January 69. And the, uh, and the Knicks won in uh, 70 and 73. So for me, I thought that was going to happen forever. <laughs> and, uh, and Sam thought so too, but unfortunately it hasn't gone that way. What do you mean I thought so? <laughs> What's that? What do you mean I thought so too? It's never well, happened. Well, I think you, you, were, you took my, um, my optimism for these teams, right? And you, you just assumed that you know, they would win. Right, because yeah. I was filled with that. This gets yeah. at a good point, though, and this is a take that I've heard you give many times that I yeah. think Aaron needs to hear. And that's <laughs> that sports is meant to be viewed through your your fandom of a team. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. Fantasy sports has poisoned that. I, you know, Sam, thank you for kind of handing me that. <laughs> because I am, Sam has heard me on my soapbox uh, many times around this that the uh, fantasy uh, sports has uh, – fantasy betting or fantasy leagues have just ruined sports. Um, and because I think as I grew up, you had a team and you rooted for that team and you had your passion for that team. So it was, you know, your heart really um, went with that team. They won. It was great. You lost. It was horrible. And they weren't split in any way. You didn't have split allegiances, right? You had your team, and that was it. And then, all the, then money again. <laughs> they figured, oh, this is a great way of getting people to watch sports 
for, for games they don't really care about because they'll follow their players. Mm-hmm. And they don't really care whether they win or lose. They're just going to watch these players because, you know, they're in a league and they'll win, you know, these fantasy leagues, which, uh, you know, it brings, you know, an excitement to uh, watching sports. But it's a, um, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate because it, it, it's, it, it robs the purity of sports that I grew up with and generations before where, in a sense, you just – you love the Mets, or you love the Jets, or you love the Knicks. Not, and you love the players that were on the team, and there weren't any split loyalties or I'm looking or feeling. Sometimes I know Sam shares with me his fantasy football. <laughs> and then like, but what are you, how could you have, how could you, you're watching a game and you're not 110% following your team <laughs> to win, but you're, you're looking at other things, whether this guy got a touchdown or, you know, what the defense is doing on the Pittsburgh Steelers, who cares? You're watching the game. So I, I just want to kind of put that out there. And I know I'm in a minority nowadays, but um, I'll stand by what I'm saying. You, you have a response there? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I actually appreciate that take because there is a noticeable absurdity to, like, watching a game and being like, okay, <clears throat> I need um, – I need the pitcher to strike out the side in the next inning, but then I need him to get absolutely rocked the inning after that and somehow lose the game mm-hmm. on a blown save right. um, for like the Marlins versus the Pirates, a game you don't care about. Um, there's definitely an absurdity to that that like fantasy sports has um, brought in, but I think you have to admit that even as like a diehard fan of an individual team, there's always players around the league that you admire quite a lot. Um, and so being able to kind of pull in um, players from all over the place and build your own team and trade assets and kind of feel like you are, part- even though you're not, feel like you are participating in an aspect of the game that's appealing to a lot of people, um, I think is another way to engage people in the sport overall. Um, I can't possibly contest your point that it's distracted individual fandom um, as I didn't even find my Diamondbacks fandom until moving away from Arizona. Mm. So, um, but there are, I think, a lot of people like me who grew up with parents who weren't really strong fans of any single individual team mm-hmm. um, and maybe never had a seminal event in their life that brought them to a team. Like, my brother's a massive Yankees fan. Mm-hmm. Um, why? I don't know. Your, your dad I, was, was Brooklyn Dodgers, right? Yeah, my dad was a Brooklyn Dodgers uh-huh. fan, and then like tried to stay with stay with them when they went to Los Angeles, but gave up on them in like the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, you know, I never had a good uh, good source of fandom to draw from, um, and that's I think why I am so drawn to fantasy yeah. sports. And for our listeners, don't forget the fantasy corner is coming when the season starts. Okay? <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that, Aaron, and, and I do feel bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, is it better to be a fan of no team at all or to root for the Mets and Jets over the last 30 years here? I I really don't know. Well, I'll I'll tell you precisely. I mean, again, you know, that being a fan of the team, win or lose, is probably – I'm going to say this, and I guess Sam inherited this from me, (laughs) is probably one of the greatest joys of life. Yeah. That you can care so much – about something that in the scheme of things means so little, but yet you could put so much emotion into it. 
And so, uh, yeah, no, I have to say sports and following uh, the New York teams that I love have um, been a really uh, big part and enjoyable part of my life. And I, I, talking Father's Day, this is one of the things I feel I'm really happy that I've uh, you know, shared with Sam, even though with that has come a lot of pain and anguish. <laughs> but I, I think that has built it's made a lot him of his, tough, though. That's right. It's built character. Right, so that, that's what I've always said. The difference between a Yankee fan and a Met fan is character. <laughs> it it like would that. be very appropriate if the Mets uh, did win this year, though, right? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I think most meaningless year. Yeah, I think that would be appropriate in, in many ways because we've seen. Uh, well, actually, you know, it would be getting to the uh, the World Series and then getting to the seventh game and blowing it would probably be the most appropriate. Thing. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. I, Against I, maybe like a White Sox team. Like, like yeah, somebody yeah. else who doesn't really belong. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, uh, thanks thanks for coming on. This has been a, a, a good conversation, I think. And we're, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be, you know, we, had a, we have a conversation with Aaron's dad as well. I hope you guys enjoyed these. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And of course, uh, from all of us here at the Alonzo Bet, and by all, of course, I mean both, happy Father's Day. Uh, thanks very much, <laughs> and thanks for having me on. It was great. Here's my dad joining us to talk about some of his favorite baseball moments, what's going on in the season, um, and some things around the league. All right. Thank you very much uh, for joining us here. We are lucky to have a very special guest on this Father's Day, my very own father, Murray Goodman. Dad, how you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So in honor of Father's Day, we wanted to have our dads on, and uh, we started da Sam's dad off with the same question. So we'll ask you, what do you think about the current status of Major League Baseball right now as it pertains to the resumption of play in the negotiations between owners and the Players Association? Well, I actually hope that there's never any more baseball ever again. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> wow. So are, are, are you not going to watch if the season happens? Absolutely not. It's, <laughs> it's, it is absurd. These two parties couldn't be any more absurd. And Rob Manfred is, is just an idiot. And Tony Clark's not, not any better. Uh, the players are whores, and the, um, uh, they have no consideration for the fact that the owners who have these huge investments and uh, um, great uh, um, uh, uh, they, they own a great... Uh, Asset. Uh, something asset. Thank you. Um, yeah. the, uh, the players have no respect for that. And the, um, the owners are going to be losing money. And uh, uh, to play the season, the owners are better off not playing the season. So I should warn you right now, Dad, that you're in very hostile territory, okay? You're talking to two guys who have spent the last three weeks on this podcast absolutely destroying the owners and their absolute disregard for the game of baseball. And as somebody who I know very well has a healthy disdain for Rob Manfred, I'm surprised to hear you join on the owner's side here when in reality, it's really short-sightedness and unmarked greed on the part of the owners that's keeping this season from being played. Why do you say that? Well, for starters... 
they've decided, they've made this calculation that there is this lump sum of money that they're willing to pay out to players. And every single offer that they've given them has been that lump sum of money. They haven't moved from that point. They haven't attempted to negotiate with players in good faith. They've cut farm systems. They've limited the draft and they've limited player development in a way that saved a very, very minimal amount of money for companies that are evaluated always over a billion dollars, often over four, three or $4 billion. And what they're doing is not furthering the game of baseball. I think this very well can also be seen in the way the owners have taken um, to negotiating the elimination of minor league teams. This isn't about the baseball as a game. This isn't even about major league baseball or their own team. This is about turning short-term profit and keeping afloat for a very short window here when these are very large organizations that have most of the time plenty of runway and should not need to be cutting corners at the cost of future development at the cost of the sport that they're in because at the rate that they're going the owners are going to destroy fan interest in baseball which could destroy baseball and then the owner's assets are suddenly worth nothing it won't be the owners that are destroying it. Rob Manfred is destroying interest in baseball. He, he's the head of the own. owners. He all but he let, does is bid for the owners. He is the owners. But let me uh, let me see if I can uh, respond to you. Um, we're talking about um, many players making in the tens of millions of dollars a year. Okay, mm-hmm. um, 45, 45 million people are out of work. Don't you think that they could figure out a way to take enough money so that they could still live? You don't, you think you could live on a million, million and a half, two million a year? You think just for a year, just for a year while we're in this crazy worldwide pandemic and economic disaster, do you think they could do that? So, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to that point because I, I just want to see baseball back, but I, I, I think I, you know, if I put myself in the player's shoes, I'm like, let's just take the money and play. But I also sort of see it from the perspective of like the owners are, you know, the owners have billions of dollars. Why can't they just pay, you know, $8 million more each to just make the season happen? So like, I, I feel like you can make the argument from either side. Well, I well and it's hold on, Sam. and it's more pertinent on the owner's side because you're talking about players making you know one to thirty five million dollars for the season. The least valuable franchise in baseball, the Miami Marlins, is still worth just a hair shy of one billion dollars. You're talking about second. owners whose net worth is often billions and billions of dollars, believe, and you're asking I them to lose about ten million dollars for the season. And that's nothing to them. That's less significant than the pay cut that the players are looking at, even in their enlarged salaries. I don't believe that uh, Miami is the least valuable franchise. It, uh, it can't be more, uh, uh, less valuable than Kansas City, but that's neither here nor there. Um, if the players said, okay, let's compromise. Um, we say uh, um, 10, you say six. Why don't you give that four difference to food banks? Might feel a lot different. So for our listeners out there, this is something we didn't touch on earlier in the episode. The framework, quote unquote, agreement between Rob Manfred and um, Tony Clark does have, I believe the number is uh, $150 million going to uh, social justice charities. So this idea that my father's bringing up here is actually something that they have discussed a little bit in in meeting in the middle and then uh, paying some of the difference 
to charity. I don't believe they've done it to the extent that you're suggesting, which of course would be the better option. But when we're looking at assigning blame here, the other point that you brought up is why don't the players just give in? You know, why don't they just say, fine, we don't need that much money this year. Everything will go back to normal next year. And I think that's a reasonable point that a lot of people ask themselves. But what's inexorable from this situation is the backdrop of the relationship between the Players Association and the owners in negotiating. And from the Players Association perspective, the owners have never negotiated in good faith. They've constantly tried to overplay their hand. They've constantly over-leveraged their position over the players. And they're seeing this in this negotiation. They're looking to the next uh, CBA agreement. And they're saying, whatever we give now is already ground lost in a CBA agreement that we are about to do in about six months negotiations will start. And so they don't, they don't see this just as a couple million dollars this year. They see this as we're the gatekeepers of future generations of baseball players trying to protect them from things like revenue sharing models and trying to protect them from 16 team explained the playoffs and universal DH and all this other thing that the players association don't want. Okay. So the Players Association, um, when the union came to pass, that's when baseball really started to change for the worse. Um, and I'm <laughs> what gonna, is let, going on here? Okay, um, keep going. Where, what stadium can you take a family of four out to for under $40 to take them for a seat, drive down there, park, get them a Coke? You can't. You can't. Yeah, nowhere. That has nothing and, and, and to do with the Players Association. Just a second. And this is for kids playing a game. Do you think that somebody for playing a game made $2 million, $3 million a year? That's not enough money? It's got to be $30 million a year? Really? <laughs> so, so that you could have families come to the ballpark for a reasonable amount of money? And, and oh, my God. That's why baseball doesn't have the fans that they used to have, because they priced themselves out of it. This ar this argument is absolutely nuts. It's been amazing that, that you've come on this show because here's what you're doing. You're complaining essentially about capitalism because what you have is you have an open, unregulated market because there's no revenue sharing in baseball. There's no salary cap. So you have about as close to a real free market as you can get in baseball free agency. And so you're complaining that the teams are utilizing that open market to give themselves competitive advantages. But at the same time, you're arguing against capitalism because owners have found a model where they can make concession prices and ticket prices as high as humanly possible while still bringing enough foot traffic into their stadium to keep their team afloat. So what you want is for them to stop gaining profit from ticket sales and, um, and refreshments, but you also, don't want them to utilize the system to gain competitive advantage on the open marketplace for players. So uh, the cognitive dissonance here is quite strong, I hate to say. And you've well, personally left me in a stupor. Sam, I don't know how you're feeling right now. I, uh, I'm not a union guy. I think unions are, <laughs> are not a good thing. Um, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I apologize the, to all of our listeners. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, if either one of them is angry about this, I'm happy to talk to them. <laughs> um, so, uh, we'll, we'll leave your email in the episode description. Yeah, Thank you. That, that's great. I just, I just don't believe that kids should be making that kind of money to play a game when, when that money could be so much better used. 
All right, so we we do have to wrap this up here because we have limited time. We wanted to get to one other uh, little thing here, just a bit of nostalgia. Um, so you are from kind of a different era of baseball, and we want to ask you two different questions. You, you've followed the game, and you've kept up with the game incredibly well, but you've also seen it evolve immensely from the time that you were interested as a young boy. Very so much. the first question is, is there any stat outside of what you grew up with, the traditional average RBI home runs, basically, um, that you've really grown to appreciate the value of? OBPS. OPS. On base plus slugging? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Sam and I actually discussed that in detail earlier in this episode. Yeah, we discussed that on this episode and, and sang its praises. Yeah. So we love to I hear that. That's a, I think that's a, a really great indicator of a player's true uh, value. Yeah, we would agree. Yeah. Um, and the second question is, do you have a favorite baseball memory? Um, for our, for our listeners out there, I know what it's not, because it's not when my father carried me out of Game 7 of the 2001 World Series when I the D-backs were down. I didn't up because of my back. We okay, yeah, back when we walked back. out. Um, but do you, have have a, a, <laughs> do you have a favorite um, baseball memory? And we're going to let you kind of take this any way you want, because it's Father's Day, and I feel like this is a big part of our relationship and a lot of fathers and sons have a baseball relationship like this. So we'd love to hear your story. Uh, easy. It's an easy answer for me. Um, Sandy Koufax. So Sandy Koufax, when he didn't pitch on Yom Kippur, when he won uh, the, uh, uh, the, when he pitched in a world series um, and led the Dodgers to the world series. Um, every time I could see Sandy Koufax, but specifically um, one game sticks out. I was a kid. I was in a hospital, and um, the Dodgers were playing in old Forbes Field in Pittsburgh, and Koufax gave up a um, home run to the opposite field to Clemente in the 11th inning to lose one to nothing. <laughs> wow, he is pitching in the 11th inning. He went 10 and a third or 10 and two thirds to lose the game one to nothing, um, and, uh, uh, he was just such a classy guy. Um, he kind of nodded to Clemente when, uh, Clemente was coming. I watched him black and white. Mm -hmm. Clemente was coming around the bases and, uh, it was, uh, uh, two of the greatest players in the history of the game. Um, one-on-one -on -one. Koufax lost that day, but he, uh, it wasn't as if, uh, he lost to Gare Ali. Um, or some guy who, uh, uh, Mario Mendoza, uh, he lost to the great Roberto Clemente. And, uh, um, that without a doubt was, uh, uh, Koufax is my greatest memory of baseball. That's a great one. Yeah, that is a great one. So, um, I can promise that, uh, you will be a visitor on this show again sometime. I know you have some more baseball stories we love to hear. Sam's father also certainly will be coming back at some point. Maybe we could get both of them on at once. <laughs> there would be, knowing your dad and my, and my dad's comments on labor just now, I'm sure there would be some very interesting discussions between them. Um, but thank you very much for coming on from all of us here at the Alonzo Bet. We want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Um, happy we'll talk Father's to you soon. To you. Thank you so much, Sam. Nice to see you. Uh, thanks for having me.
All right, folks. Well, thanks for sticking around, hearing from our old men, and uh, we appreciate having you this time as always. Hopefully next time, Sam, when we come and to our viewers through their AirPods or speakers or wherever they're listening, we'll be able to talk about a baseball season that would be, on the horizon. That would be such a great gift, but with that, let's sign off. I'm Sam. And I'm Aaron. Thanks for joining us at the Alonzo Bay.